I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss, and we're talking today about government policy and how that influences the opioid epidemic, the addiction arena in its entirety. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Dr. Singer is senior fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based Cato Institute, where he works in the Department of Health Policy Studies. In Arizona, where he practices for the last 35 years, he's a general surgeon, but originally came out of Brooklyn College for his undergraduate, got his MD at New York Medical College. We are all clinical guys and patient comes in, has a problem. We want to help them. When it comes to addiction, comes to substance use disorder, opioids in particular, these are really not easy. But the question I would have first here, how big a role does government policy, how big a role does that play in determining the outcomes of our patients? If you're talking about in determining how we can handle our patients with addiction, I think it plays, unfortunately, a very big role interfering. A lot of policymakers, I don't think they really understand, for example, the difference between addiction and dependency. They don't understand the dynamics of what of what makes a person develop an addiction to a substance or an activity. It's not unique to substances. This is, you could have gambling addiction and shopping addiction and others. Most of the people who make policy don't have any understanding of the nuances. They do attach a lot of stigma to people being addicted, particularly to substances that are not approved. So over the years, as alcohol prohibition ended in the 1930s, people have become more accepting of the fact that there are going to be a certain amount of people who are going to develop problem with alcohol, use it in a very unhealthy way. Fortunately, nowadays, we don't moralize. We view people as people have a problem and we're compassionate. We want to help them. But unfortunately, when it comes to other substances that have been deemed not acceptable, the way we treat it as a moral failing, we stigmatize people, particularly with the treatment of opioid addiction. It's only just this year now that being able to prescribe buprenorphine as a medication to treat opioid use disorder been more widely made available by the government primary care practitioners who are interested in treating substance use disorder to, to make it easier for them to do that. Methadone is a, another example. Uh, depending on which study you read, in some cases, methadone seems to have a better compliance rate than buprenorphine. In other studies, buprenorphine is better. There are pros and cons of each. Probably the right answer is, depending on the circumstances, one may work or another may work. In Canada, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, since the 1970s, Primary care practitioners have been able to prescribe methadone to treat substance use disorder. Numerous academic psychiatrists in this country have called for that. In this country, we stigmatize people who have opioid use disorder so that if you're going to get treated with methadone, you can't just go into a clinician's office. You have to go to a special government-approved outpatient treatment program, opioid treatment program, or OTP. In itself, segregates you from the rest of the population. And then on top of the federal regulations, there are state and local regulations. Communities fight OTP opening up in their neighborhood because they don't want to see, quote unquote, drug addicts lining up in the morning in their neighborhood. And people who have other behavioral or physical disorders can go into a waiting room and sit in there with other patients who might be there for diabetes or high blood pressure or a wellness check or whatever. I don't see why people who have substance use disorder, they're singled out and stigmatized. And of course, this results in making it much more difficult for them to get access to methadone treatment. A study we found there are only about 400,000 people in this country who are currently accessing methadone treatment. And it's estimated it could be as many as seven or eight million people with opioid use disorder in this country. But the government right now, in both state and mainly federal, put a lot of obstacles in the way of getting treatment 
to people who would benefit from methadone. Not to even mention the whole area of harm reduction, which is a completely different subject. You bring up a very interesting series of topics, and they're troubling because here in Palm Beach County, we were considered the pill mill capital of the United States. And the image of these people lining up in front of the pain clinics every morning was such a powerful visual. The visuals was frightening and chilling and, and scary. What Brent said, and I think it's a, an excellent point that needs to be explored even more. And when you, for example, when you testified before Congress, do they understand the subtleties, the nuances here of the different types of substance use disorder characteristics, pathologies, situations. Is that one of our big problems that we have this image of the pain clinic in Delray Beach with people lined up at six o'clock in the morning? Yeah, unfortunately, most of the, I mean, there are some very sophisticated lawmakers and some come from the medical field, but even then, just because they have an MD after their name and they're a member of Congress, that doesn't mean anything. It had, for example, former secretary of HHS for a short while, Tom Price, MD, who's an orthopedic surgeon who said methadone is a stupid idea. You're just replacing one addiction with another. A lot of members of our own profession don't understand what substance use disorder is and the, and the nuances and the complexities, but most politicians don't. There are some do. I, when I testified, I could tell by the way that the questions they were asking that they've read a lot about this. In fact, one of them I learned afterwards had a, a child who died from an, an overdose, animated her to become very, to learn a lot about this. I was trying to explain to lawmakers what we call the iron law of prohibition. Economists use this term called the Alke and Allen effect. It doesn't just apply to drug prohibition. It applies to prohibition in general. But the shorthand version is the harder the law enforcement, the harder the drug. Because it incentivizes people in the business of prohibited substances to come up with more potent forms that could be smuggled in smaller sizes. They get easier to smuggle. And for the risk you're taking, since they're more potent, they could be subdivided into more units for sale. That's why, for example... During alcohol prohibition, they weren't smuggling in beer and wine, they were smuggling in the hard stuff. The iron law prohibition that has led over the years, the THC concentration of cannabis to grow in concentration, led to the development of crack cocaine as an alternative powder cocaine. In the early part of the 2000s, people who were non-medical users preferred diverted prescription pain pills, which from a harm reduction standpoint, I have to say, that's a, a wiser choice than something you buy on the street. And as the supply dried up, they moved to, to heroin, which black market then readily supplied. The year 2012, the dealers found that if they added a little fentanyl, which is easily synthesized in a lab like meth is, to the heroin, it made it more potent so they could smuggle it in in smaller sizes. And that really got accelerated in the pandemic because border closures and lockdowns made it really difficult. That was a short supply, so they switched over to fentanyl, which uses preparidine, which was an abundant supply. They figured out, hey, why do we even have to buy on opium? Let's just stick with fentanyl. It's easy to make. This is all driven by doubling down harder and harder and harder on law enforcement. So if there wasn't a market, there wouldn't be people producing and selling it. We need harm reduction. That should be a very familiar concept to doctors because in affluent societies, much of what we do is harm reduction. When we have patients, for example, we wouldn't have to put them on blood pressure medicine and statin drugs, let's say, and metformin if they only changed their diet and went on an exercise routine, but they're not about to do that. We're not endorsing their decision not to do that, but we're prescribing medication to try to mitigate some of the harms that their choices are making. Alcohol, we practice harm reduction with alcohol. It's legal. For example, it's something like a designated driver. That's a form of harm reduction. 
if the lawmakers can't bring themselves politically to the step of ending prohibition, what I told them is that you should at least remove all of these obstacles the government has put in place. Groups that want to engage in harm reduction, such as syringe services programs, we call them now overdose prevention centers, but have been called safe consumption sites, have been around since the 1980s, things like that. Well, we talk about the iron law of prohibition, this concept. Your perspective is the best case scenario would be to end this prohibition altogether. Right. That's probably not feasible within our lifetime. What's the next best thing? Decriminalizing the process? That'd you- be the next best thing because at least you're not putting people in cages because they chose to use a substance other than your approved substances of alcohol and tobacco and things like that because they chose, for example, a plant, cannabis, or another substance particularly, of course, in minority communities who can't afford good lawyers, felony conviction that destroys their future. At least you're not doing that. The resources that are being put into resting these people and filling the prisons could be put into making harm reduction programs more available. The downside of that is you're still, because it's prohibited, getting these drugs on the black market. Think they're buying an oxycodone pill, for example. Turns out it's it's fentanyl. Now, of course, we're hearing about Xylazine, the veterinary tranquilizer, being mixed in with fentanyl to enhance it. They call that trank. So soon, while our politicians are busy figuring out how to go after fentanyl, we're moving on to the next thing because all of this doubling down on the same approach is just fueling the production of even more dangerous, potent forms of the drug. So what I try to tell lawmakers who can't bring themselves to either of those two alternatives, either ending prohibition or decriminalization, If your overriding concern is that people are dying and their lives are being destroyed, that should be more important than they're using a substance that you don't approve of. If you removed all these federal and state obstacles, for example, it's starting to happen now. In many states, if you handed fentanyl test strips out to people so they could at least test to see if actually was fentanyl, you can get arrested. That's drug paraphernalia. What I tell them is if you can't bring yourselves to do what I think you should do, at least do this. Harm reduction is going to be necessary even in, in my ideal situation where drugs are legal. People are going to, you, you're going to need to engage in harm reduction. It seems to me from all the years that I've been involved in psychiatry, really nothing is working. We're, we're still in the same mess. It seems that too many people are looking at what may sound like a simpler mechanism to stop the problem, namely get rid of the supply. The real issue is to get rid of the demand and to make people, to ask them, why do you want to get high? Why do you want to use something that could be dangerous? I think in one of the articles you published, you talked about how that has not worked to scare people with going to jail. And I've often thought that like when Lister decided that we should wash our hands before we do surgery, he identified the real problem for a lot of infectious disease. And I personally am troubled by the fact that we're still chasing the same endpoint and we don't have a whole lot of really good insight as to teaching people not to be trusting. And I think that's a failure of a big chunk of our society and mental health and maybe religion and maybe schools and maybe just old-fashioned parenting to reduce the market. I'm your thoughts. If we define addiction as compulsive use despite negative consequences, threatening somebody that they'll go to jail 
is not going to work because that's a negative consequence and they're going to engage in compulsive use despite negative consequences. Most of the time, their compulsion is driven by stress triggers. And now you're adding more stress and disruption to their life. You're actually aggravating the situation for them. But I agree with you. The University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health came out with a study in 2018 using CDC data. They've discovered that the overdose rate actually has been on an exponential growth trend since the 1970. The only thing that's changed is which particular drug seems to be the predominating among the overdoses at any point in time. In the 70s and early 80s, it was heroin. A lot of soldiers came back to Vietnam. They had heroin problems. Then it became cocaine, and then it became Vicodin and Percocet, then Oxycodone, and then we've moved on to where we are now. Ted Cicero, Washington University in St. Louis, investigates this a lot. He found something that I found very troubling. They interviewed people being admitted for heroin rehab. In 2015, 33% said that they initiated non-medical drug use with heroin. That was their gateway. Whereas 10 years earlier, that same study found 8.9% uh, initiated with heroin, that the majority initiated with diverted prescription pain pills. We all know this. Mental health problems. There are a lot of communities that have chronic unemployment. People have talked about growing despair. To your point, we really haven't made much of an effort to look into the root causes of why more and more people are turning to drugs. But then I want to make one more point that many of your listeners might find a little bit more controversial. If anyone's read Dr. Carl Hart at Columbia University, addiction specialist, and he had a book out about a year and a half ago now called Drug Use for Grownups. Also, Jacob Sullum wrote a book, I think it was 2003, called Saying Yes. And the fact is that in addition to some of these drugs being an escape from pain or a way to self-medicate, they're also pleasurable. A lot of people just enjoy it, just in a way a lot of people enjoy a cocktail. There is a lot of solid evidence that a significant number of people who engage, let's say, weekend use of illicit substances like cocaine or heroin, don't become addicted. About 80 to 90 percent don't. Most people who develop addiction began experimenting with drugs, usually in their adolescence, before they had developed prefrontal cortex, executive functions fully developed. It's not as if everyone who uses drugs that are illicit has an addiction problem. A lot of people who use drugs that are illicit enjoy it. That's their drug of choice. Which brings us to an ethical question as, as physicians, as the purveyors of the health for our patients and society, do we have the right to preach, don't do drugs? It's interesting you mentioned this. On May 8th, the Cato Institute published a, a piece of mine called A Hippocratic Oath for a Free Society. And people are welcome to look at it at the Cato website, cato.org. By the time this podcast goes live, it probably won't be on the homepage anymore, but you could put it on the search engine. And recently, there have been a lot of controversies about some of the newer Hippocratic Oaths that seem to be strength from medicine. So they said, aside from that, most of the Hippocratic Oaths don't actually, including the original Hippocrates, don't show the right amount of respect for the patient's rights to make their own choice. I think as a doctor, it's my obligation to tell my patient the dangers of their choices. Just like when it comes to counseling our patients, diet and exercise, we should respect them as autonomous individuals. First of all, they should feel comfortable sharing in confidence with me that they're using an illicit substance because their secret's safe with me as their doctor. It's my obligation as their counselor on health to tell them whether I think they're making a mistake, that if they choose to continue to do this against my advice, here are some things you can do, at least make it less dangerous. But I don't think we have a right to say you can't do it. How do the politicians respond to that? Do they get it, so to speak, the nuances of what you're trying to say? 
There are some who do, but there's some who don't. And I would say the majority that I speak to don't. A lot of their staff do, interestingly. When I'm in Washington for the Cato Institute, I visit staff members of the House and Senate on the Hill. As you know, Cato's a nonpartisan think tank. We don't play for the red team or the blue team. So a lot of the staffers are much more knowledgeable and open to these ideas than their bosses. And then, of course, their bosses have political concerns. So I've had conversations where the staffer would say, listen, I totally get it. I'm on the same page as you, but my boss would never get away with that in his or her district. It'll cost them the next election. So he can't take that position. So those are some of the, you know, the realities we deal with. And even harm reduction is with a lot of members of Congress, it's got a, a bad connotation. People equate advocating harm reduction, enabling immoral behavior, drug use of illicit drugs. If a person has developed COPD from smoking against my advice and comes to me now because they're having issues with their COPD and they're continuing to smoke, should I just not treat them because I'm only enabling them to continue smoking? Or do I treat them the best I can? It shouldn't be any different with substance use disorder. We should, as doctors at least, I can't I can't make politicians think this way, but we're doctors and our job is to basically look at our patient as our client and to give them our best advice uh, to keep their secrets safe with us and to tell them what we think is in their best interests and then respect their decision. Because of the politics, as you say, it's a challenging situation. And Cato Institute generally perceived as a, as a libertarian perspective with the, the mindset that things like privatization, deregulation, those are the solutions government gets in the way all too often. Well, we like to think as libertarians that we're just consistent. We believe in personal autonomy and maximizing individual liberty. And uh, so we're just consistent across the board. A legitimate function of the government is to protect everyone's rights to, to do whatever they want to do as long as they don't interfere with the rights of others and to provide a court system for us to peacefully settle our disputes and to protect us from you know, invaders from outside our country who want to do us harm. But otherwise, people need to be free to, to live their lives according to the way they see fit. On many issues, we come down on the same side as people on the right. On other issues, we come down on the same side as people on the left, which is actually why, to our advantage, I, I would think, as, as a think tank in Washington, I should say neither the red team or the blue team perceive us as on the other team's side. Sometimes we align with the blue team. Sometimes we align with the red team. In the case of my testimony before the House Judiciary Committee that you referred to, I was invited as a witness of the Democrats, the minority. But we have people from Cato who invited as, as witnesses of the Republicans. It's still a shame, though, when politics plays such a big role in healthcare. Healthcare should just be, from a physician point of view, doing what's best for our patients. But clearly, that's that that's that's the challenge here. In in Florida, for instance, they they've just passed a couple of laws tightening up penalties if, if they catch you involved in selling, distributing, or even possessing fentanyl. Particularly, they're talking about the rainbow fentanyl. Some of, if, if you're convicted of this, you can get 25 years to life plus a $1 million penalty. Uh, originally, the governor wanted to include the death penalty in there. What's your thought? Yeah, actually, I mentioned this in my testimony. It's not going to work. Most of the people who deal with drugs, this will get the low-level drug dealers and destroy their lives, but they'll be replaced right behind them with another one. Most of them don't think they're going to get caught. 
The people who are dealing drugs because they need money, they have an addiction problem. As I said, it's compulsive use despite negative consequences, so it's not going to deter them. For the most part, the bigwigs in cartels, they're much more afraid of rival gangs and dealers killing them than they are of getting arrested and going on trial in the United States. To me, it's chest beating theater for your constituents. But when I gave my testimony, explained how the iron law prohibition works. And this, by the way, it's an economic law. It's not an opinion. It's it's a fact. So, so Dr. Singer, you said you, you talked about the iron law prohibition. Well, I don't believe in an iron law prohibition. I was about to answer him saying, well, you don't have to believe in it. You don't have to believe in gravity either. But I guarantee if you jump off a building, you're going to fall down. He wasn't interested in, in me answering. So I didn't get a chance to answer. You have five minutes to have a back and forth. It's called a colloquy with the witness. And during that five minutes, you, you could ask questions or you could just give a lecture, which was what this person chose to do. So this congressman had his staff put on an easel right behind him, poster of different quantities of drugs that were seized because at one time he was in law enforcement before he ran for office. And he just goes on this long rant about this is how much drug we seized. Those are people who would have been dead, blah, blah, blah. And he says, now you told me that you don't think the death penalty for fentanyl is going to deter them. And you're probably right, but he would just give me pleasure. And he's yelling to get one of these guys, strap him down on all fours and just fill him up with fentanyl and watch him stop breathing because that's what he deserves. And his time was up. Two minutes into this, I already could surmise, okay, I'm not going to get a question. I just got to sit here and listen to this. The chairman then said, your time is up the gentleman from so-and-so, and I went to the next questioner. And while the C-SPAN cameras moved to that questioner, the viewers couldn't see, but that congressman got up, left the hearing room, and for the next three hours, he went for three hours, was not to be seen again. And I'm thinking, okay, he got his little spot to play back in his district. He wasn't here to, to address the rising death rate. He was here because he wanted to show his constituents that he's angry as hell and he's going to do something about it. Of course, he did nothing about it. He actually left. So he didn't stick around to hear uh, possible things that could be done. I had an op-ed with one of my colleagues in foreign policy shop at Cato. It was in uh, Daily Beast about this a couple months ago. When we went into Colombia to drive out the cocaine trade, we moved it to Mexico. First, we went to Peru. We moved it to Colombia. Then we went to Colombia, moved to Mexico. And if somehow we drive it out of Mexico, we'll go someplace else, maybe back to Colombia, maybe to the Caribbean. You can't stop it as long as there's a market for it. But in the meantime, we're going to be destabilizing countries. If we did something that we would turn Mexico into what we did to Iraq, or worse, we could turn it into what we did to Afghanistan and have nothing to show for it. One of our biggest trading partners who shares a 2000 mile border with us now being a very unstable country with, with chaos. If you had the, the ultimate control, you're the scriptwriter. What's the problem? Why can't we fix it? I think the problem is we need to overcome our mythology about these drugs. Opium in general and opium products are not nearly as dangerous as alcohol. They don't cause liver disease, they don't cause cancer, encephalopathy, cardiomyopathy. We got to basically overcome the, these biases, many of which were drilled into us as children when we were going to school. I don't want to get into this too much, but a lot of them in the early days were fueled by racism. The Chinese had opium dens. California was the first state to outlaw opium. Mississippi didn't for years because there weren't any Chinese in Mississippi. Same thing with cannabis. They don't call it cannabis. They call it marijuana because that's what the Mexican migrant farmers called it. 
and they were other people. So it was easier to, to sell marijuana prohibition. New York Times had front page stories about cocaine crazed Negroes who were impervious to bullets. Plenty, many people in the Northeast were very resentful about all these blacks moving up from the South looking for work, were willing to work these long hours for low pay. They must be on cocaine because I can't keep up with them. There's a lot of racism that was originally responsible for this, or at least made it easy to get these laws passed. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going on now, but, but those are the roots of it. So first of all, we got to overcome our biases. We have to start looking at all these drugs the same way we look at drugs that we make legal. Our goal should be to treat these drugs the same way we treat alcohol, so make it legal and regulated. And that regulation includes things like age restrictions. It's much harder for kids to get alcohol now because the retailer's market is adults and they don't want to jeopardize their licenses. So they strictly card kids. Always going to be people get fake IDs or straw buyers. There's workarounds, but it's, it was much easier to get it when it was illegal. All sorts of rules. You know, when I go to buy my drug of choice, which is bourbon, I go into the liquor store and I see on the shelf, it says 45% alcohol. It never even crosses my mind that it might be tainted with fentanyl or they may be lying to me and it's 60% alcohol because it's legal. And there's all sorts of accountability. How do we get there from here? We have to hit a critical mass. Alcohol prohibition for the first 10 years or so, they just kept doubling down. Our cities were turned into war zones. We made people like Al Capone. And then finally, by the early 30s, everybody was starting to say, you know what? This was a bad idea. Let's end it. If some states want to prohibit it, well, that's their state's right under a constitution. I mean, Mississippi, alcohol remained prohibited until the mid-1960s. Cultural thing. When we begin to compare our proposals or thoughts to the various political entities, we always have to, as much as we can, without inundating, give them background, educating, and, and you want to say to them, read the real stories about the opium dens, read the real stories about the people who got into alcohol and drug abuse for really sad psychological reasons and understand exploratory use of medications. It, it's complicated. It's not something you can do in five minutes. Personally, I think that's where we fail yet. We're getting there step by step, but oh my God, slowly. We've all been indoctrinated. So there's like a, people have a blind spot. They understand when people have a drinking problem. They're very compassionate now, or they're addicted to nicotine. The thing that for me is the maybe current take-home message. Why does Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous have the success rate that they do? Well, my understanding is that they don't have, they have good marketing. I think only about eight to nine percent success rate for Alcoholic Anonymous. The most successful treatment, to my knowledge, is medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine. You are correct. And I said that and I overextended it. I guess what I was thinking is that in terms of just dealing with the totality of a person's life, the socialization, the companionship, the lack of isolation, and I personally believe that mixing the AA concepts with appropriate medications when necessary is awesome. There's no one right or wrong answer. One of the things that AA does offer is connection. People with addiction usually have a loss of connectedness and they're going to that safe place the way they feel when, when they take that substance. That's what most people say who have, have addiction. It's also important to understand that not everybody who uses these drugs is addicted. There's a tendency for us to equate a drug user with an addict. So you have a person arrested for possession of, let's say, heroin. They go to a drug court and they're told you either go to rehab or you go to jail. Well, of course, they make a rational decision and say, I'll take the rehab. 
They may just be using it uh, occasionally on weekends and they're not addicted. It's just assumed that if they have it, they must be an addict. We used to call the weekend user of heroin chippers. That was the term in, in New York City in the 70s and the early 80s when I did my training and worked a lot in substance abuse. And we met people who were chippers. They had five days of solid work. They were paying their taxes and doing everything right. And on the weekend, they took some heroin. Right. That was their drug of choice instead of alcohol. Speaking of heroin, you actually have advocated that heroin be moved into Schedule 2 instead of Schedule 1. Yeah, well, it is Schedule 2 in most of the developed world. In 1924, the equivalent of the drug czar in those days, I think it's the head of Bureau of Narcotics, asked Congress to ban diastole morphine. Heroin's the brand name that Bayer gave it. He may actually protested. He was convinced that that caused moral deterioration. Translation, most of the people arrested for possessing heroin were black. The AMA protested said it makes no scientific sense, and we only have a handful of pain medications. Please don't take that from us. Well, Congress made it, banned it. Within 10 years, 90% of people arrested for illegal drug possession were arrested for possession of heroin. Because if you're in a black market, what would you rather sell? Something that there's another way people can get it or something that's totally banned that they have to go to you for? Meanwhile, it's on the formulary in, in much of the Western world, Europe, Canada. They just call it diamorphine rather than heroin because of the baggage. Even starting in the 1920s in England, they were giving heroin to people with heroin addiction. In Switzerland, 1994, they started the first heroin-assisted treatment program. And in order to to qualify, first you had to fail methadone. You had to be an adult and you had to surrender your driver's license. You would come in each day and you'd be given a clean syringe and pharmaceutical grade heroin and you could inject. Then you leave and you're allowed to come back again later that day if you needed to. What they found is, first of all, the heroin trade just disappeared in Switzerland because you didn't have to go to the black market. Also, teen heroin use dropped. We think because, at least the people who ran this thought, because of the image of people going in and out of clinics to get their heroin, didn't look cool. Teens were less interested in it. A referendum held on, I think it was in 2007, and overwhelmingly the voters of Switzerland proved continuing it. It's not your first choice, but it is another arrow that should be in our quiver. Since that time, a couple of programs were started in Canada, in Vancouver and Montreal, in Germany, Spain, Netherlands. There are about five or six countries that have heroin-assisted treatment. First of all, to say that heroin has no accepted medical use, which is Schedule 1, of course it has. It's diacetylmorphine. It's actually half the strength of legal hydromorphone, which is diluted. It's roughly the equivalent strength of methadone. It's shorter acting. But if at least if you make it Schedule 2, then you don't have to go through all these paperwork and uh, wait years to get approval from the DEA to do a pilot program to see if heroin-assisted treatment might be helpful for some people. That's why I think it should be moved to Schedule 2 the safe consumption sites. What's the data show on that? I'm actually cautiously optimistic. So we, we did a study that came out in late February of this year. We collected data from around the world. We prefer to call them overdose prevention centers because that's really what they are. So the first overdose prevention center was established officially government sanctioned was in Bern, Switzerland in 1986 and it's still going. At this point, 147 government sanctioned overdose prevention centers scattered over 16 countries. There's one in Mexico. There are several. There are 38 in Canada. There's, there's 25 in Germany, 14 in Switzerland. Switzerland is not 
you consider a libertine country, but they're very practical people. In our country now, the end of November 2021, the mayor of New York City, there was such an overdose problem, he authorized their Board of Health authorized On Point NYC, which is a harm reduction organization, to open two overdose prevention centers in New York, one in East Harlem and one in Washington Heights. After one year of operation, they'd already reversed 750 overdoses. That's 750 people who probably would have been dead. And so far, the Justice Department has not done anything. In the state of Rhode Island, the legislators passed a law allowing privately funded overdose prevention centers in their state, and they must coordinate with the county Department of Health so data could be collected. And I'm told that it's imminent now that one will be started there. It's two harm reduction organizations are teaming up to start the first one. In the prior administration, a completely privately funded group in Philadelphia, among the principals was former Governor Ed Rendell of Pennsylvania. They got the blessing of the Philadelphia City Council to open up a safe consumption site called Safe House in Kensington section of Philadelphia. And the federal government said, if you do that, you're going to jail. They actually decided to go through the legal system. So it's still, believe it or not, hung up in legal limbo. My hopes are that there's never been a reported overdose death since overdose prevention centers have been around. Not only do they prevent people from dying and spreading disease and bring people in off the streets so you don't have to watch people inject, a bonus is that a lot of these people, because of the connectedness that they experience there, because the people operating these centers, they're non-judgmental. They have them stick around a while before they go out on the streets so the initial rush wears off, and they engage them in conversations. The experience has been, and we had learned this in the conference, because we also had the person who runs the oldest one in North America in Vancouver called Insight. They just come over to you one day, and they just open up to you because they really finally feel somebody actually really cares. They end up asking for help a lot of times, and you're able to get them into help. You hear the argument, oh, if you can buy drugs across the street, use them inside, why would anyone ever want to get clean under these circumstances? Two things. Number one, people say it's going to encourage drug use. I don't know anybody who would tell me, you know, I've been really wanting to shoot up with heroin, but I can't find a, a, a safe indoor place to do it. If you want to continue chasing this delusion that you could stop people from engaging and using these drugs that you don't approve of, keep doing what you're doing. If you're really upset because you're seeing all these people die and spreading HIV and hepatitis, living on the street and not getting help and not turning their lives around, this is something you could do. To those people who say, I don't want my tax dollars going toward it, we're saying, no, they're in Philadelphia and in, in Rhode Island, there are plenty of privately funded harm reduction organizations that want to do this, but they're not allowed to by 21 USC Section 856, which is called the Crack House Statute. It's a federal law that makes it illegal to knowingly allow the use of an illicit substance on your premises. I'm hoping that through this civil disobedience, just like we're seeing finally cannabis legalization, if more and more states and cities just say, come and arrest us, we're doing this, we're tired of seeing people die, then maybe that'll push Congress. And I've spoken to many congressional members staff since my testimony who are actually interested in doing something about that, either repealing the statute or politically more likely amending it to permit overdose prevention centers. You're not going to see anything happen in the next year or two. It's like with cannabis legalization. Just got to keep hammering away and hammering away, but hopefully sooner or later they'll let people do it here. Dr. Jeffrey Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Jeff, thanks for joining us and sharing these cautiously optimistic predictions. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to give me the opportunity to talk.